0: Our text tonight is from Luke 7. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 7, 11 through 17. As we encounter this woman from a city called Beautiful, who encounters Jesus. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray. Father, we ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand and receive. We ask that your spirit would go before each of us tonight and bring transformation. God, we don't just come here to learn and get our heads puffed up. We come here to be changed, to be made new, to be made alive, for dead bones to be breathed into and life be given so that we can go out new creatures. And so we ask for that tonight, God, we ask that you would do your work amongst us and Wherever we're here distracted and anxious and fearful, I pray for the invading spirit of Jesus Christ to come and bring comfort, renewal, and peace. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I am a fearful person. I think my fears started at a very young age with a guy named Monty McDuffie. Monty was the neighborhood bully, and at one time he used to swim in my pool in the backyard, and then something changed, like can't-buy-me-love style. I know I'm dating myself with that quote, but maybe some (laughs) 80s movies reference here you will understand. But it changed, and he became known as someone to be afraid of. He would haunt you at the bus stop. You would always be afraid that he would be popping around corners, ready to throw down punches. One particular time, I got into a fight with one of his little minions named Philip Hendricks, who I wasn't afraid of, but because Monty was standing behind him, I was afraid of him. And so they jumped me after I got off the bus one day and bloodied my nose and face. I I actually had a friend coming home with me that day. I was embarrassed, ashamed that I got beaten up with this new friend coming to my house. And so... One other day, I lied in wait for Philip Hendricks with no Monty around and gave him a bloody face and nose. My fears didn't stop with Monty McDuffie. It continued on to Jason Voorhees as I went to my friend Philip Finger's house and watched Friday the 13th Part 2 on HBO as a 10-year-old with no parents around. What was going on there, I don't know. But I love Philip Finger's house because of it. And so we watched Jason. And there was this one scene where Jason leaps through with his hockey mask, a window. And it's just so happened that my bed sat under a window. And that's all I could think of from that moment on when I went home at night and got into my bed. Jason leaping through my window. And so I would sneak into my parents' room most nights and hide underneath the side of their bed until the sun would rise, and then I'd sneak out. My parents never knew any of it, and I did it for two or three years. <laughs> I was afraid. I'm fr- I am am cats. cats. When I came to uh, NMSU, uh, I was afraid of a particular girl, I can't remember her name, but we'll just say the girl, in English, freshman English class... In one of the buildings, I can't even remember the name of anymore. But I remember asking her out on a date, going out with her on a date, and then every time I saw her in class, wanting to run away, not wanting to talk to her because I was afraid. I didn't know what I was going to say in that moment to her. And so I would see her in class. I'd like wave high, and I'd wait to talk to her till I could call her on the phone and kind of get my shtick together. Whenever I called her, I was afraid. Um, I remember sitting in my apartment on Kent place and some Friday nights afraid that no one would call or afraid that no one would answer when I called. Fears don't stop in college, they go on to adulthood. I was afraid when I had my son who almost died as my wife gave birth to him, afraid of what that responsibility would be, afraid that something would happen to any of my four children. Now I'm a church planner and I'm afraid that my church will close. That I'll have to shut the doors on my church. You see, fears haunt us. Fears are all around. And we come to this text and we encounter this woman and she has much to be afraid of. She is a woman from the town called Beautiful. The Beautiful City. It was a small city, but A city nonetheless, and its name was beautiful. And this woman is grieving the loss of not just her husband, who has died, we don't know when, but now her son, her only son. She is now going to be left alone. And in the ancient world, what that would mean for this woman is that she had no future. Because there was no one to care for her. She had no son. She had no husband. For a woman in this day and age, that meant either despair, prostitution, and death. And so this woman is mourning the loss of her son. And the scene is set for us. It's an odd scene that we have the city called Beautiful, and we have a parade of mourners walking out of this city. It doesn't seem to make sense. Luke is telling us here that there's something amiss here. There's something wrong with this picture. This shouldn't be the way it is. A town called Beautiful should not be producing death. And yet that's exactly what's happening. This woman marching out. And the way it would work in the ancient world is she would lead the casket. And they would hire mourners. And so mourners would be hired. People to come... And play dirges, to play, to dance, to cry out, to wail, professionals. People who would lead the morning parade. And there was reasons for that. There was reasons for that. One, that the, woman would, the shame of the woman would be somewhat lessened, but she still led the parade. She still led the train. She's in the front, marching out of the gate of the town called Beautiful. All of her friends have lined the streets. Everyone knows that this woman is headed for a life of despair and destitution. She must confront that. She must walk through that. And into an unknown future. Not to mention that her son is dead. The one that she would wipe tears from. And clean knees of. And feed food to. This boy that had become a man. Who had a story. Is now gone. All of this happening because of death. See, that's the thing about fears. Fears center on death. No matter what the fears I shared with you from Monty McDuffie to Jason Voorhees to the girl in my English class, all fears find their capstone in death. They point to it. They echo from it. They give shadows to it. Every fear that we have. The other thing about fear that's very interesting is it exposes us. When we are confronted with fears of various sorts and kinds, and every one of you sits in a chair tonight, and every one of you has some fear that confronts you as you edge near the end of your college career, the end of a semester, as you look back on regrets of things you haven't done or have done, fear creeps in at every little nook and cranny of our lives. And what it does is it exposes our hearts. It exposes what we live for. It exposes our self-absorption. This woman is terrified with life. We're not given much about the woman other than she's from this city called Nain, that she is a widow. We have to infer and guess a lot about her story. We put it into historical lenses. But she is definitely living for Some sort of security that has been lost. Maybe you live for security too. Maybe you live for it in the approval of others. You're constantly afraid that you might upset someone that you live with, that you love, by doing something that they won't like. You need to be satisfied by their approval. Perhaps it's money you live for or Perhaps it's power or position or prestige or class rank or experiences. Have I lived while I've been here at NMSU? All of those things, those fears expose us, expose what we live for. And this woman is facing all of that. And this parade marching out of the town of beautiful. And so, what's the what's the ways that we deal with death, with the fears in our life? I think there's some different kinds of things that we do. But one I want to really touch upon is we get we can get sentimental about things like death, uh, things like the things we're afraid of. You don't have to walk by but two steps outside to see a lot of sentimental art. On posters for you, whether it's the meditation lady that's up on the, the one there, that little poster. I don't know if you saw it. It's very sentimental, like it's, it's trying to appeal that's there to something very uh, about art, about meditation, that there's nothing bad in it. It's beautiful. It doesn't touch upon the brokenness of life. It, that's what sentimentality does. It wants to eliminate brokenness in whatever way it can. It wants to evade it. It wants to uh, trivialize it. It wants to get away from the realities of life, the realities of brokenness. The Ben, uh, as we were sitting down talking about the sermon tonight, gave me a little piece from the onion. And excuse, uh, I'm not going to say all the words. but <laughs> In spite of all her efforts to sit down with her friend Alicia Wright and help her navigate her recent romantic and professional problems... Sources confirmed Wednesday that the 27-year-old Jessica Danette has absolutely no idea whatsoever as to what she's talking about. (laughs) I know it seems tough right now, she says, but trust me, this is just a little bump in the road. Things will get better before you know it, said Danette, whose earnest but completely inept attempts to provide comfort and support only serve to reveal how unqualified she was to address her friend's complex situation. Believe me, I've been here before myself and it sucks. But it's painful experiences like these that make us stronger in the ends. What doesn't kill you make you stronger. (laughs) And when you look back on this later, you'll see that it's not even as bad as you think it is now. At press time, Wright was telling Danette that her completely meaningless advice had been very helpful. (laughs) We should laugh at it, but it's not. Uh, It's what we do. We look at death and we write poems like this. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on the snow. I am the sun on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awake in the morning's hush, I am the swift, uplifting rush. Of quiet birds encircling fight, I am the soft starshine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there, I did not die. Sentimental bull. Death is unnatural. It is linked to the brokenness of sin. It is the it is not something nice that we go through It is the most terrifying and terrible thing of life. And every one of our fears finds itself ending there. And to be sentimental about our fears and about our death simply makes us suppress the truth, push it down, and pretend. This woman had no ability to do that, by the way. Her world was over there, there we have resources. we have bootstraps that we can kind of put on and pull ourselves up by because we live in a modern world. but she did not. There was no sentimental answer for her. She was mourning. that's why she needed the mourners to help her cry out, scream out, "Why God? why have you left me God? Where are you God? what am I going to do God? That's the cry of this woman's heart. And the parade of mourners leaving the city beautiful is a hopeless parade, a parade of despair, a parade of loss. So what do we do? What do we do with that? The text gives us the answer, and the answer isn't in absence. You see, sentimentality is about absence. It's about the absence of reality. What this text gives us is presence. And the presence is Jesus. You see, it's a really great picture. There's two trains colliding. There's two parades about to run into each other outside the city. There's the black parade, the death parade of this woman, the mourning parade, and there's the celebratory parade of Jesus. They, the disciples and Jesus, are marching into the beautiful city and they are celebrating healings, they are celebrating demons being cast out of people's lives. They're celebrating victory. They're on the ascent. In Luke's gospel, this is one of the ascent passages. We have yet to arrive at Jerusalem in chapter 9 of Luke. When we get to Jerusalem in chapter 9, and it's a descent to Jerusalem where Jesus will go to the cross. But right now, we're on this ascent where everyone's discovering that this dude, Jesus, he is something, man. There's something about this guy. He might be the one. He, He might be the one that... We've heard about. He might be the one that prophets have talked about. He might be the one that's echoing through time. That's going to bring an end to Roman rule. He might be the one. My father who's taxed wrongly by all the governors of Rome. He might be the one to end that. So they're celebrating as they march into the town of beautiful. And they collide. And it's interesting what Jesus does, right? He walks right into it. He doesn't let go. Now, you know how this is. You see someone crying. You see someone get up in the front and embarrass themselves and make a mistake. And you're like... It's like painful, right? It's like a train wreck. We don't like to see train wrecks. Think about the scene. Mourners, criers, people with ashes on their body... Clothes torn for us, man. Westerners, death, no thank you, man. Send him to the hospital. Antiseptics, get him away from me. I don't want to see that. But for Jesus, he just walks in. He just enters into it. And he doesn't just enter into it. He looks at the woman and he goes, don't cry. Is Jesus being sentimental? I mean, it seems like it, right? Because that's exactly what the Onion article professed to us. Why isn't that so for Jesus? Because Jesus can do something about it. He doesn't just stop with saying, don't cry to the woman. He doesn't just comfort her in her mourning. But he actually, his presence, he steps in. And he does something unheard of. He touches the beer. He touches the coffin. He touches the thing that they're carrying the dead body on. And what that would mean for anyone is that they would become ceremoniously unclean. Jesus would have to go away for seven days or ten days or depending on the tradition, the Jewish tradition that you uh, walked in, you would have to go be clean. You would go have to make yourself clean. You would have to separate yourself from people. You would have to leave the city. You would have to leave the celebration parade that... You know, as you're dancing and singing, coming into the city beautiful, Jesus fearlessly walks in and touches the dead body and says to the boy, to the man, get up, get up. And the boy does. It's presence that saves us in our fears. It's presence that saves us from sentimentality. It's presence that saves us from nostalgia. Nostalgia is that thing that's related to sentimentality, that thing where we think about, again, absence, absence of the bad things. There was a day when things weren't bad for me, and we reflect back nostalgically on that time. There was a place where things went well for me, and we reflect nostalgically back on that time. Nostalgia is the reason for many pregnancies and hookups because people look back at this time where things were, oh, it was so good then. And you go back to that person again. That's what nostalgia does. Absence. But Jesus is presence. He's there. He steps into it He steps into the fear. He visits. That's what the the people say about what happens here. God has visited his people. They they actually get nostalgic themselves, saying a great prophet has risen amongst us. Other gospels will say, Elijah has come for us, hearkening back to the prophet Elijah, who also raised dead boys and brought them to life. He's visited Elijah. That word visited means that God has come to do an action on behalf of a greater, on behalf of a lesser. God has come to do some action as the greater one on behalf of this lesser one. It's amazing what Jesus does. It's amazing he has no fear. It's amazing that he steps in unafraid. What's interesting about this passage is it's sandwiched between the story of the centurion and John the Baptist... John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus. John the Baptist who prophesied of his coming. John the Baptist who said, I'm not worthy to carry this dude's sandals. And yet we find John, just a few verses down here, rotting in prison. And sending out his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should I expect another? Why? Why does John ask that? Because John's rotting in prison. Jesus, don't you realize who I am? I'm John. I baptized you. Why am I still in prison? Why haven't you come to rescue me? In the midst of death, in the midst of the fear of death, John cries out to Jesus. What does Jesus say to John? Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. This man from Nain. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I'm not going to take you out of prison, John. In fact, you're going to die there. What if God says that to you tonight in the midst of your fear? I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to take you out of it. I'm not going to take you to your nostalgic place. That time where you think all was good and well. What are you going to do? It's the question to ask. The existentialist will scream out in his crisis to either despair and say, there is no God. Let's just die. Or, he will say, let's just make the best of it. This is the way it is. Is that where you're at? If your fear isn't abated, if your impending whatever it is doesn't go away, will you scream out, Yes, I'll just have to make the best of it. That's sentimentality. It doesn't provide answers and it doesn't provide comfort. It just suppresses. There's a great story that Pastor Larry Crabb tells. He's a counselor as well. It's in his book, The Pressure's Off. It's a Saturday afternoon. He's a young boy. He climbs into, a, or he goes into his bathroom upstairs in his house. And he shuts the door behind him, and the door gets locked, jammed. and he can't get out. He screams for his mom, and his mom comes running up the stairs, and she attempts to open the door, and it won't open. And he screams, and he cries out, Mom, get me out of here. She says, Son, I can't unlock the door. And he gets more and more afraid every second he's in there. Unbeknownst to him, his dad is gone downstairs into the garage and pulled out a long ladder. And he's gone to the back of the house and has put the ladder up against the house and is climbing up the ladder. And he gets to the window and he slides the window open. And he jumps in the room and with his strength opens the door. And young Larry runs out, gleeful, thanks dad, and leaves. That's it. And this is what Larry says. He says, that's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I get stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself. And when I can, I should pray. And then God shows up. He hears my cry. Get me out of here. I want to play. He unlocks the door to the blessings I desire. Larry goes on. Sometimes he does. But now, no longer three years old and approaching 60, I'm realizing the Christian life doesn't work this way. And I wonder if any of us are content with the presence of God. Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door we most want opens? When a marriage doesn't heal, a kid doesn't stop rebelling, when a friend does not stop betraying us, when financial reverses threaten our comfortable way of life, when the prospect of terrorism looms, when health worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies and depression deepens, when ministries die. God has climbed through the small window into the dark room. But he doesn't walk by me and turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. What moment are you most dreading in the next week or the next year? Maybe it's something you know is going to happen. Maybe it's something you're always afraid of. Maybe it's a sudden accident or illness, a tragedy, a scandal. Come into the middle of the scene of Luke 7. If you can, in prayer, feel its sorrow, feel its frustration, feel its bitterness, its anger, and then watch as Jesus comes to join you in the middle of it. Take the time to sit. Let Him approach you, speak to you. Touch you, command you. Hear him say not what you expect he will say. He may not even do what you want him to do. But if his presence comes to be with you in that moment, that's what you most need. Because once Jesus is in the middle of it all, you will be able to endure you may not come out on the other ends with it gone but if jesus is present the story of luke 7 promises us that you will endure let's pray god we ask for mercy Wherever we're at tonight, please come into the middle of it. Please touch our dead bones. Please touch our weak knees. Please touch our apprehensive tongues. Touch us, heal us, make us whole. Allow us to get up and walk with you. Have mercy on us, God. In Christ's name.